Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome back to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another episode in our Toolkit series, where we're taking a deep dive each month into a single topic, recapping the basics, but also focusing in on frequently asked questions and judgmental areas. This month, we're all about impairment. You know, don't forget to think about potential triggering events on an ongoing basis, right? Don't wait until the end of the reporting period or the end of the year to look backwards and decide whether or not I had a trigger event. It's important to stay on top of things. One of the things that's most challenging about 360 is this concept of the asset group, that it can be something as low as a single asset up to potentially the entire business. That was Matt Sabatini, a partner in the national office, and Adam Smith, a managing director in the accounting advisory practice, to take us through the impairment models for long-lived assets. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. So Matt, Adam, thanks so much for joining me for our September month about all about impairments. And for today, we will be talking about long-lived assets. And I do think one of the interesting things when we're talking about that is really just thinking about what we're seeing from a market perspective in terms of the impact of the current macroeconomic environment. But before we do that, Matt, I thought it'd be helpful just to like reground everyone of where we are in the model, and then we can get into some of the current considerations. Sure. So for long-lived asset impairment, we're talking about ASC 360. Figured I throw a codification reference out there early and, and hopefully not have to do it again. We're not, we're not going to be hitting on uh, goodwill on this uh, podcast, but I know you have another one uh, in store. So Exactly. Next week, Adam will be back too. Exactly. So. So, so the scope really includes all long-lived assets. Think about those that are amortizing or depreciating, so property, plant, and equipment, um, finite-lived intangible assets, and a couple of other kind of maybe less obvious assets that are included in the scope, including right-of-use assets, which we're going to hit on a little bit later. So an overview of the model really depends on whether or not the asset or asset group that we're talking about is one that is held and used or one that is held for sale. And we're going to get into a little bit of detail on both models. At a real high level, held and used is is really an event or trigger-driven two-step impairment process, and it's performed at an asset group level. And I promise we're going to hit on all of that. <laughs> Lots of definitions we're going to have to get <laughs> exactly. To. Uh, and then the held for sale model is really focused on the disposal group or the group of assets that's intended to be sold, and that model is a lower of carrying value or fair value, less cost to sell. So that's that at a, at a really high level. What the what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, don't try to do your accounting based on what Matt just said. So keep listening. <laughs> well, you can try. <laughs> um, so you know what's one rule of thumb that I'll throw out there for your your frequent podcast listeners, right? If generally speaking, if we're doing another podcast on it in this two week period, it's not in the scope, right, of what we're talking about today. Um, so, right, no financial assets, no goodwill. All right. Okay. That's a very good rule of thumb, actually. I like the way you described Perfect. that. <laughs> so, again, I said I'd get into it in a little bit more detail, and, and, and we will. But the, the held and use model is the one we're dealing with, I think, for the most part today. And we will talk a little bit about help for sale. Like I said, it's an, it's an impairment model that is not 
um, an annual based model, right? So there's no requirement to test every year uh, when we're talking about asset groups or long lived assets. It's it's trigger based or event based, uh, and we'll get into some of those trigger events today. Um, it's a two step test, like I said earlier, right? So the first step is really determining whether or not the carrying value of the asset or asset group is recoverable, and that's done on a on a gross cash flow or estimated undiscounted cash flow basis. Um, and the second test, is, and then you only get to the second part when you fail the first part, but the second part is comparing the carrying value of the asset group to its fair value. And then the recording of the impairment is done based on the results of that second test. So any excess in carrying value over fair value would be the amount of impairment you record. So then that's very helpful. So one of the things, though, we talked about and you mentioned kind of with, I would say, bold, if you could talk in bold, was the term asset groups. And, you know, we've talked about in some of our other impairment models, you have different you know, levels at which you perform the test. And, you know, we'll get into goodwill next week, which is a reporting unit. But what do we mean when we say asset group? Yeah. And I think it's it's a good thing that you pointed that out because it is one of the more confusing aspects of this model, right? We're doing asset groups. We're not doing necessarily individual assets and we're not doing reporting units. Um, so I'll give you the definition of an asset group. It's the lowest level for which identifiable cash flows are largely independent of cash flows of other groups of assets or liabilities. Right. So from a layman's perspective, what you're really looking for is can you isolate um, the cash flows that you're looking at from an asset or group of assets and distinguish it from kind of the rest of the cash flows from the entity or from other groups of assets? So you're really trying to get as low as you can in terms of the identifiable assets. Um, and when that becomes impossible to a, to to assert that those cash flows from that low level asset or group is independent of others, then you move up a level. And that's kind of the way I think folks approach it is you start as low as you can and then you, and then you move up. Where your asset group is going to be is really dependent on the facts and circumstances and the way you operate your business, the way you operate those assets, the way they interact with one another. Um, so I can't really tell you that it's going to be just like a manufacturing plant or it's just going to be a retail store. That's your asset group. It could be, that, or it could be more than that. Um, frankly, it could be could be at a lower level too. But it really, it's really fact, and, and it's really entity specific, fact dependent. If that makes sense. Um, so, just a couple of kind of bullets I'll, I'll run through real quick in terms of questions we get and kind of what are the um, so some some points that people trip up over. Right, the asset group itself doesn't necessarily have to only include long-lived assets. So I know we're saying that this is a long-lived asset impairment test, but when you're identifying an asset group, the the actual cash flows may include other assets um, that you're not, necessar not necessarily testing for impairment of this model. So it might be accounts receivable, it might be inventory, it might be certain specific liabilities related to that group of assets, which are, again, all interdependent on generation of that cash flow that we're talking about. It could also include recognized and unrecognized assets. Um, so generally, you're looking, you're thinking about what's on your balance sheet because we're doing an impairment test. So you're generally thinking about things that have carrying value. But your asset group could also include internally generally internally generated IP, which doesn't have a carrying value because you've been expensing it as incurred. Um, you're generally going to exclude long-lived assets that are um, going to be sold. Generally, those are going to be held for sale, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, I think one of the things that's most challenging about 360 is this concept of the asset group, that it can be something as low as a single asset up to potentially the entire business. Um, an asset group can be coincident with the reporting unit, and some businesses only have one reporting unit. And so the breadth of the standard can make it very challenging in that 
it's applied very differently depending on whether you're looking at a single asset that's used until it's just disposed of or a business that's really an ongoing going concern potentially forever. I feel like if I was listening and be saying, so you're telling me an asset group can basically be anything? Like maybe are there some examples we could give or any ways, you know, Matt, if you're coaching a team or a client, do you kind of tell them what to look for when you're trying to identify your asset groups? Absolutely. And 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 you are right. It could be anything, but <laughs> it's not necessarily... That's not that helpful. <laughs> I know. Um, but not in every situation, right? So it's going to be situational. Right. And, and I think that's what's important, right? So things that you're looking at in, in terms of judgments to make as to where your asset groups sit, I think would be the interdependency of, of revenues would be one thing, right? And there's a good example in ASC 360. And I think um, we lifted it for our PP&E guide, which we'll uh, link to later, I think. Um, um, but it deals with buses. Uh, so it's a company that operates bus routes for a municipality and it's under a contract. And the contract says that you have to operate these five bus routes. Um, otherwise, you can't operate any of them. Right. And the facts and the example are four are profitable and one is not. And what's our asset grouping? Because ultimately, if our asset grouping is each bus route individually, you're going to end up with an impairment on the one that's not profitable. But because the contract says we have to rate we have to operate all five or none, the asset group rises to a level of all five routes. And there's an implicit, what I'll call an impairment shield there, right, on the one that's not profitable because we're going to look at all five together. And in totality, if it's profitable, you have no... Um, you, you, don't, you don't fail step one, right? Because you're going be, to be able to recover your cash flows. So that's a, that's a good example and kind of uh, why it might differ depending on the facts and circumstances because it could be contractual. It could also be based on your business strategy, right? You could be operating a retail store in a certain market as a loss leader where you have 10 retail stores, but you know that one is going to be kind of operating for, you know, to test new products or, um, and it's always going to operate at a loss because you don't know if you're going to be able to re recover your cash flows on that one. So there's no contract that says you have to operate that store. It's just your strategy and it's your entity specific facts and circumstances that are going to cause you to maybe call that asset group all 10 stores in that market, including the, the one that's, that's operating at a loss. So those are, I think some, some, some examples where that are revenue based. I think there are also, you know, maybe examples that are cost based, right? So you might have examples where shared costs are going to cause you to lump assets together, right? Where you can't clearly distinguish the costs incurred by one plant versus another, right? They're, they're highly interdependent from a, from a cost perspective. What I will say is that that doesn't necessarily work for allocated costs. So if you have costs that are allocated from a, from a corporate center, um, that's not really a reason to say my asset group is at a higher level because you can allocate those um, um, based, on, based on various metrics. So I know this uh, podcast is not just about asset groups, but maybe the last question slash comment on this is that we're going to get into triggers, this trigger-based model. But from my own experience, when you hit the point where you have a trigger, then trying to figure out your asset groups is just like one more piece of stress in what can sometimes be a stressful situation. So it, it feels like you should have like a general idea of your asset groups, or this is something you could consider before you get to a point of impairment, and then you would just refresh or I don't know, Matt, from sort of a practical point of view, how do you think about that? Yeah, practically, I think about it the same way you do. Um, frankly, I think everybody who's listening to this podcast should have their flow chart in front of them, right? That talks about the order. Well, me too. Right? So <laughs> I assume that everybody has that. But in my mental flow chart about how this model works, it's always determine your asset group first, and that becomes before anything else. 
And frankly, you're right. I mean, if you're waiting until a trigger, one of the events that indicates there might be an impairment to happen to identify your asset groups, it's probably going to create a lot of stress in the system. Um, it's going to, you know, put stress on your internal control system, right? Because you really should have had that done already. So, All right. Good reminders there. So then let's move on talking about the actual impairment or in, in how we're going to do maybe step two of our flowchart. And you mentioned at the beginning that this is a trigger-based model. And Pat and I briefly talked about triggers in the first episode. And um, the rule of thumb I took away, and this is something Pat and I have talked about before, is that if you think you may have a trigger, you probably do have a trigger. But with that said, it's helpful to understand the types of things you should be looking for from a trigger perspective. And I know that there's at least some sample or, you know, types of items in 360. But how do you guys think about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I can start and, and kind of list off some of the ones that are included in 360 in our, our guide. And then, you know, Adam, you can weigh in on what we're seeing in the market. You know, some of the common ones that pop up and that are specifically listed are a decrease in market price if you're a publicly traded entity, um, something that changes in, the, in terms of the physical condition um, or the manner of use of a specific asset or asset group. Let's say changes in the business climate. Um, if you're if you're constructing an asset because assets under development or construction are subject to this impairment model, you could see a significant change in estimates to complete the construction cost um, or a significant change in what you anticipate the demand for that development project is. Um, if you see a history of continuing operating or cash flow losses, or if there's an expect change in expectations about how long you intend to use the asset or what you're going to do with the asset in terms of continued use versus sale. Those are all examples right out of the guidance, but the guidance is also very clear that those are only examples, right? So it's not an all-inclusive list. And, and like you said, if if you think you have an impairment trigger, you probably do. All right, Adam, what have you seen in practice? One of the interesting things we see in practice is, um, you know, a lot of people are looking at the kind of macro environment, the outside influences on a business when thinking about impairments, the decline in stock price, the increase in interest rates, increasing inflation, so many things going on right now are things that could be trigger events. What's especially interesting about 360 is many of those things don't necessarily make it more likely for you to fail the step one uh, recoverability test because they're not necessarily reflecting your cash flows. Um, but what's very interesting is if you do have things affecting your cash flows as well, such that you do fail the step one recoverability test, all these other factors may make your actual impairment quite a bit larger because in the fair value step two side of this, they all get compounded. Um, whereas really only cash flow projections are going into that recoverability test and the length of the cash flows, the time you're going to be using the asset, things like that, but that are very specific to your company. So you might end up with a triggering event that's based on outside forces, but perhaps not actually have an impairment because your cash flow projections may not have changed. Mm -hmm. All right. That's helpful. So, if again, I'm in my mental flow chart, I've identified my asset group, I've concluded I have a trigger. So then what's the next step, Matt, in terms of thinking through if I have an impairment? Sure. So a couple of, couple of things, like I said, this is a two-step model. We're going to get into the two steps, which is really the next kind of um, box in our flow chart, right? And by the way, there is a physical flow chart in our PPE guide for those listening. Um so the first thing I'd point out is before you even get to step one, you want to make sure you're doing it in the right order, right? So if you have a trigger, 
the guidance under under ASC 360, and this is important, for held and used has a specific order in which you're going to test your assets for impairment, which is different from the order that you're going to do it in a held for sale model, which we'll get to. But the held and used ordering is essentially you test all of your other assets first. So things like accounts receivable and inventory um, under whatever applicable guidance applies to those specific assets. And we're doing podcasts on all of them. Um, then indefinite lived intangibles, right? So under 350, uh, that comes next. And then you're going to get to your uh, 360 asset group test. And then only then after all of that is done, do you test goodwill? Okay. So that's the ordering for, for held and used. Um, then, you know, after you figure out your ordering and you've done your testing for the other assets, you're going to jump into step, step one, which is the recoverability test for um, long-lived assets under ASC 360. And I know, adamant, you're going to talk us through a little bit of the cash flow test, but I do want to point out that the reason why we're so adamant in saying there's step one and step two and why you have to do step one first is because a lot of people do ask if I can just, if I have a trigger, can I just jump to step two and go ahead and take an impairment? And that is not allowed, right? Not appropriate to just compare your carrying value to your fair value and, 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 and go ahead and write down those assets. You actually have to fail the recoverability test under step one before you can you could even assess. Yeah, I always think that's just one of the most interesting parts of this model. Uh, so definitely, I think, um, Adam, if you're going to walk through that, that'd be helpful. Sure. Uh, I mean, the recoverability test um, you know, is, sounds very straightforward. It's a lot more complicated in practice. But what you first need to do is identify what the primary asset in the asset group is that's subject to ASC 360. So what is the main long-lived asset that could be impaired under this test? And what you're going to do is um, calculate the cash flows of the asset group over the remaining life of that asset. So however long it's going to remain on your books, you're going to go out explicitly that period. What's nice is the test is a bit generous in terms of you're looking at recoverability cash flows, so you don't have to apply taxes or present value to those cash flows. But you do have to, at the end of the period you're projecting out, you do have to consider the remaining fair value of the asset group at that time. For asset groups that are a single piece of physical equipment, that might not be a very material number if you're just going to scrap it at the end of the life or something like that. But as mentioned, asset groups can be an entire business. And in such a case, that terminal value, that, that value at the end of the life of that primary asset could be alone getting you to pass the recoverability test because the value of a business can be quite large. Um, so the in, as I said, the, the, the explicit forecast, pre-tax, undiscounted cash flow for the entire asset group. And then at the end of that, if there's any remaining value of the asset group, you add that as well. And if the sum of all those things adds up to more than your carrying amount, you've passed the test. If it's below the carrying amount, you move on to step two. And this is one of those situations where because step two is a fair value test versus the recoverability test, if you do fail step one by a little, it's highly likely you'll have a much larger impairment in step two. Yeah, and I guess um, when I was in the practice and we were dealing with this, I feel like you would call this falling off the cliff, that if your undiscounted cash flows were higher than, you know, the carrying amount, even if your fair value is lower, you're fine. But as soon as you drop, you know, even a dollar below, then it's like, boom, you know, you likely have that impairment there that you're going to have to deal with. So do you still use that term? Is that... We do. And that's a very frequent thing that happens is if you fail step one, you end up with a very large impairment or much larger than the failure amount in step one. 
It also occasionally happens the reverse, where there's an impairment indicated in step one, but then you get to step two and you realize it's not an impairment of the assets that we actually have recognized. It's actually an impairment in goodwill or in something else. And so more rarely, you might find that you fail step one, but actually none of your particular assets can be written down in step two. All right. Well, I think that's a good reminder why Matt emphasized at the beginning, you have to do both steps of this test. You can't just do one and say, okay, I'm done here. Well, I guess you can do one if you pass step one, but um, otherwise you, you really need to look at both of them. So then you, you mentioned some of this, um, that there's some things to exclude, but I know that coming up with cash flow projections is always judgmental. So many different things to think about. Anything in particular you would give as advice in terms of things that should not be considered when you're thinking through these recoverability assessment cash flows? Yeah, I would say um, one of the big ones, and this is one that trips a lot of people up because it's a bit of a difficult area to think about is um, ASC 360 specifically says, you know, you can maintain your, your asset group, but you can't expand it when thinking about this set of cash flows. And so you need to be careful, like, you know, if, especially when it's a business that's the asset group, you know, as an example, if the primary asset is a factory, um, you know, physical factory, and in your long term plan for the business, you're, you're projected to build another factory for example, to meet demand. Well, in ASC 360, in this test, you can't assume that you build that next factory. You have to only maintain the current kind of size and capacity of this asset group. So that's one thing that we often see tripping people up, particularly when it's less clear as a factory, when we're talking about technology and an intangible asset being the primary asset in the group. It's hard to really think about, you know, well, what does that mean that I can't expand capacity? Um, same with customer relationships, if that's your primary asset. So it, it can be very challenging to really look at um, limiting the cash flows to only those that the asset group today is capable of generating. Okay. But then with that said, you know, since we are talking about projections and these are company specific, I think often when a company's in this situation, they may be contemplating a few different courses of action, even with the limitations you just put that it's existing assets. So Matt, how do we think about that in terms of it's company specific? Can I take into account maybe that there's different plans? Yeah, it's certainly a possibility and, and ASC 360 allows for some flexibility in terms of how companies are going to approach step one in, in laying out their uh, estimated cash flows. I'd say, you know, for the, and Adam, maybe you can weigh in here. I, for the, the most part, I think companies use a best estimate of cash flows when doing step one. Um, but Heather, like you said, if there's, if there's multiple possible paths in the future for how um, you're going to utilize that asset group, then it's possible that a probability-weighted approach might be a better approach uh, in certain circumstances for certain asset groups and for certain companies, right? Um, you know, one one common example that we see is if there's a lack of clarity for um, when an asset group or an asset within that group is going to be disposed of. Um, so that might be a situation where you may want to say, all right, you know, I have two possible cash flow streams here, depending on when and if I dispose of a large asset within the asset group or the asset group itself. Again, if the asset group meets held for sale, you're going to be in a completely different model. So we're talking about an asset group that doesn't meet held for sale. 
Um, and you may put a probability on, you know, 80% I'm going to, you know, keep it uh, for the long term, 20% I'm going to sell it uh, within two years. And that could drive a small, small ish difference in what your, uh, what your estimated cash flow result is uh, rather than just using a best estimate approach. I think we saw this a lot in early 2020 and when COVID was hitting, particularly in the retail sector, companies didn't know when they would be able to reopen their stores. And so many of them did do multiple potential sets of cash flows of here's one that assumes we're open in three months. Here's one that assumes not for six months. And it turned out, you know, eventually once they realized what the real answer was, you know, um, it, it often ended up being longer shutdowns than they may have initially expected. But I think that was best practice at the time when there was significant uncertainty into those cash flows that the asset group was going to generate. We have similar things going on this year with supply chain disruptions sometimes being unknown in scope or um, geopolitical um, issues with operations in, in affected areas. So. Um, in certain circumstances, I think it is best practice to think about multiple scenarios, but most of the time that's not necessary. Well, and I think I'll put a plug in here for documentation, contemporaneous documentation, because definitely, particularly if you use these examples where circumstances are changing, you don't want to be in a position to say, well, why did we say it was three months when it turns out it was a year or, you know, or otherwise. So I think that's, that's important. Yeah. The other thing there, Heather, right, is we, did, we maybe didn't stress this point, but the step one cash flow estimate is supposed to be based on information that's available as of the um, balance sheet data or as of the date that you're doing the test. There could be examples where after the balance sheet date, but before your report is issued, um, or something did happen to the asset group, or you executed a transaction. And if your cash flow estimates as of the impairment test or the balance sheet date didn't reflect that as a possible course of action, that could lead to a little bit of stress with, you know, were your cash flow estimates accurate? Um, why didn't you do a probability-weighted assessment? So the question comes up most often where you have maybe a disposition or a sale of an asset within an asset group shortly after the um, the, the, the trigger event or the balance sheet date. So again, it's good for documentation. It's good for, um, trying to curb second guessing on your, uh, on your cash. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So then Matt, let me follow up and okay, let's assume we just did step one. Obviously there's two possible outcomes. We could not fail or we could fail. So assuming let's take first the scenario that we didn't fail. So does that mean I'm set, done, wait till next quarter to do anything else? Or are there anything else I should be thinking about? Right. I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's done at that point. Right. So you could conclude that you're, of course not, you could conclude that your carrying value of that asset group is recoverable under step one. That doesn't necessarily mean um, there aren't other things you have to do as it relates to those assets, uh, either the asset group in, in totality or a specific asset within the group. The biggest thing that comes up is, um, ha has anything in your exercise through evaluating this trigger caused you to reconsider the useful life of that asset or, or estimates of, of the pattern of depreciation or amortization that you're currently undertaking, right? Um, oftentimes that will happen when you concluded you've had a trigger, but you have also concluded that the asset group is recoverable where you'll shorten the life of a specific asset or you'll revisit the um, pattern of amortization. Um, it is a perspective uh, change when that happens because it's a change in estimates. So it doesn't cause you to have to go back and restate or um, recast. Do like a catch up or exactly. anything. So yeah. it's prospective at that point. That's the biggest one I think that comes up. 
All right. Definitely a good reminder there. So then, okay, so that's we passed. Now let's assume that we concluded that the asset group was not recoverable. So you failed step one. Then how would you measure the actual impairment or determine if you do have an impairment? So the, the guidance here tells you that the impairment loss is measured as the difference between the carrying amount of the asset group and the fair value of the asset group. Which again, I think Adam did a good job of describing this and we can get into a little bit more detail. It's very different from step one, right? Because step one was using an estimated cash flow analysis that's undiscounted, that doesn't include taxes, and that is very entity specific. In this case, we're talking about fair value, which brings in market participant assumptions and highest and best use for, use for those asset groups, which could get you to a very different analysis than what you did in the, in the first step. Yeah, no, I, I would just raise a, a few additional points. Um, I would say most of the time, most uh, companies are operating, you know, the asset group in the highest and best way. And so oftentimes that step two analysis is just going to be taxes applied, discounted version of step one. But it absolutely does open the door to say, you know, fair value is a market participant view. You know, do we believe market participants would view this asset group differently? And so it can use different cash flows or more of a market approach and perspective on things. Um, the other thing I would just note is, you know, that, that pure difference between the carrying value and the um, book value or the carrying value and the fair value of the asset group um, just sets kind of the maximum possible uh, impairment. Um, the other part of 360 though is you have to make sure you're not writing any of these assets that are eligible for write down. You can't write them down below their current fair value. And so what step two involves is doing that test of uh, carrying value to fair value comparison, but then also doing an analysis of what is the fair value of the various eligible assets. And so sometimes you won't take the full impairment amount because you might find if you took the full impairment amount, it would write the asset down below fair value. That's a significant indicator that perhaps there's impairment somewhere else, like goodwill or one of the other assets when that happens. Um, but there, it's fairly frequent that you don't take the full impairment amount that was indicated in the first step of step two. All right. That's helpful. And then maybe, uh, Matt, follow-up question for you. We talked earlier, obviously, that this could be an asset group that we're considering impairment. So presuming there is more than one asset, how do you think about allocating the loss among those assets? I think Adam did a good job of introducing this concept. Um, the only thing I'd add to it is it's generally done on a pro rata basis um, using the carrying amounts of the long-lived assets within the group. So remember, the asset group can include all sorts of assets and liabilities that aren't necessarily subject to this impairment model. Um, so for purposes of allocating an impairment loss, are really limited to those are the, that are within scope. So again, amortizing intangibles, PP&E, right of use assets, and you're going to go pro rata based on the carrying amounts. One, one kind of incremental step, right, um, after the allocation, to Adam's point, you're not, you're not allowed, you're prohibited from writing an asset within the asset group down below its fair value. So if you get to one asset that uh, is written down and you can't go any further, but you still have some excess impairment to recognize in that asset group, you can't, you can, the interim step is kind of a reallocation. So you take all of those other long-lived assets and you kind of look back and say, do I, you know, should I reallocate some of that loss to those remaining? And again, you might be able to 
realize the full impairment loss in that reallocation step, but that you might not, like Adam said, you might have some excess, in which case the the best advice is to go back and look at your other assets and find out where that impairment really, really exists. Um, so one more question then before we move on to the held for sale model, because I know you highlighted there are a few differences. You also, Matt, mentioned right of use assets. And I know we have a whole podcast on this, but I also know there's some special considerations. So just any highlights you'd give for this audience so they at least know some of what they should be thinking about? Yeah, and I think the most important point is to know that right-of-use assets are in the scope of this guidance in ASC 360. And I think once you've learned that, you're you know, you're know halfway there. Um, I do recommend listening to the other podcasts. It, it is really helpful in getting to some of the detail on these topics. I mean, where we see questions come in are, what, what's the right asset group as it relates to a right-of-use asset? Should it ever be its own asset group? Or you know, how does it exist within another asset group as maybe the primary asset or not? Um, just, you know, decisions around when to change asset groups are pretty relevant with right of use assets, particularly when you either have a plan to sublease or abandon the right of use asset, um, or actually have a sublease in place. And, you know, a plan versus a sublease may get you to very different answers. Um, we get questions around including assets and liabilities and the recoverability and the, and the fair value test. So step one and step two, and when is it appropriate to include or not? Um, generally there are some asset, uh, some accounting policies involved with those choices, and I think the other common questions come in around variable lease payments and how to deal with that in your cash flow estimates um, and, and discount rates, because there are differences in the discount rates under ASC 842 that are prescribed for lease accounting versus those you would use in step two here. All right. Well, Matt, you definitely said enough to uh, make me definitely think if I have a situation where I have a right of use asset in my uh, asset group, I'm going to go listen to that other podcast. So thanks for that. And we'll make sure we include a link to that in the show notes. So with all that said, we also said several times throughout the podcast that, oh, oh what we're talking about here is held for use. What about if we have a held for sale? What would you highlight is different? It's uh, a couple couple key differences in terms of order of impairment, in terms of measurement of impairment. Um, I'll start with how do you know if you're in held for sale? And again, this isn't a podcast on disposal transactions. Um, but there there are six criteria in ASC 360 that you have to meet in order for your asset to be considered held for sale, right? In this case, um, I'm not going to tell you all six. The big ones are a commitment to a plan by management. Um, the asset group or the disposal group, and I'll talk about the difference, is ready for immediate sale in its current condition. Uh, and it's probable that the sale uh, or disposal of the asset group will happen within a year. Um, so those are, the, those are the big ones. And if you meet kind of all of the criteria, then your asset group um, can be kind of reclassified on your balance sheet as held for sale. And you know from that point forward would be considered a disposal group. So why, why is that important? Uh, it's important because the disposal group is going to be measured on the balance sheet at the lower of its original carrying value when you did this reclassification or the fair value of the disposal group less the cost to sell. Um, so that whether or not you really want to call that an impairment model or a measurement model, you know, that's up for semantics or debate, but that's the way the model works for a disposal group. The ordering of impairment test changes too. And I mentioned that earlier, right? So when you're talking about a health and use model, it, it goes other assets first, then long-lived assets, then the uh, asset group under 360, then goodwill. In this case, because the disposal group is going to consist of largely right, the assets that you're going to dispose of in a single transaction with a single buyer, a lot of times it's a business, right? And a lot of times it's a 
It's actually a reporting unit or a piece of a reporting unit, and that requires the allocation of goodwill into that disposal group. So that, that kind of drives, I think, the ordering change, which tells you first test other assets, then test goodwill, and then test the disposal group under this level of carrying value or, or fair value. Um, other notes, right, as it relates to the disposal group, once you've got that measured at the lower of, you're going to cease depreciation, depreciation and amortization of all the long-lived assets that go into that disposal group. And it kind of just stays steady unless the value uh, or the fair value estimate goes down in future periods, at which point you would continue to write it down. You don't write it above the original amount you classified it to, but you could possibly have some variation in the fair value to the extent you've written it down in one period. It could go up the next period, but it would never go up above the original carrying value that you recorded as a, as the original disposal group. Yeah. And I think this is part of this part of the model is one of the parts that people get confused. The fact you stop depreciation and then sort of this continual remeasurement is, is definitely something if you're in this, this situation, you want to go look at the guidance, which would be in the um, financial statement presentation guide, chapter 27, and then the PP&E and other assets guide uh, that Matt referenced earlier in chapter five. So... All right. So then Matt and Adam, very, very helpful and definitely something, I think, uh, some good reminders for companies. I feel like anytime you're in this situation, you know, even if you've dealt with it before, it always feels new. So I think this is a good topic to be getting a refresher on. But I also know you both deal with a lot of um, companies and engagement teams that are in the situation of dealing with a potential impairment and you know, as we mentioned, this can be somewhat of a stressful time. So um, my final question would be if you have any specific reminders or just advice for companies when they're in the circumstance. And maybe, Matt, I'll ask you first. Sure. Um, a lot of it we talked about, but the ones that I'll, I'll highlight or reemphasize or are, you know, don't forget to think about potential triggering events on an ongoing basis, right? Don't wait until the end of the reporting period or the end of the year to look backwards and decide whether or not I had a trigger event. It's important to stay on top of things. Um, make sure you're thinking about long-lived asset impairment at the right level, right? So the asset group uh, level is very important. And again, Heather, your advice was very good. Don't wait on the asset group until you have a trigger. Have that set already. Uh, and make sure you're doing it in the right order depending on the circumstance. So held and use versus held for sale. Um, you can't jump to step two. I just want to point that out again. You got to go through the right yep, order good and reminder. do step one first. Um, I think those are the key ones for me. All right, good. And Adam, how about from your perspective? Yeah, I'd say um, some of my advice would be, I think a lot of companies, especially those that have done acquisitions, are very familiar with the goodwill impairment testing. And they have policies in place to look at triggers there, and then they're doing it at least once a year. My advice to clients has often been, you know, integrate the 360 um, trigger analysis into that process so that you're, because often a triggering event for goodwill might be a triggering event for mm -hmm. long lived assets as well. And you can think about them together. Um, we do often see companies that, you know, are doing a goodwill test and ends up with a full write off of goodwill, for example, for a reporting unit. And we'll often push on them and say, well, if more than your goodwill is impaired, maybe you need to think about, you know, at least mm -hmm. performing a, a 360 test. Um, so I think, you know, making, and then that could actually change the amount of goodwill being impaired because you might have a lower carrying amount by the time you actually do finalize that mm -hmm. 350 analysis. 
So I, I think the other thing I would say is I have this conversation with a lot of clients that, you know, because of the nature of the 360 test, uh, and it's only trigger-based, you're not doing it very often, it's very frequent that we have clients that have never done one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so don't be afraid to reach out because that's not uncommon. You know, it, it's not uncommon at all for companies over an entire, a, a person's entire career to have never run into this really because they've only been in good times essentially. And so when things take a downturn, you know, they don't know what's going on. They've never read 360 and that's very common. So don't be afraid to reach out and talk to someone who, who has dealt with it before. Well, I think that's great advice. And maybe I'd just chime in with my own, that even for companies that haven't dealt with this, you know, when you're dusting off your controls for your controls testing every year, I would make sure you have controls in this area. Because again, you don't want the first time you're trying to figure out who has to be involved and who's going to be reviewing it and everything else to be when you're actually in that situation. So I think that kind of falls along Adam, with what you were just saying. So, gentlemen, definitely helpful, and I think very timely reminders. As Matt well knows, we are now up to the best part of the podcast, which is when I'm going to try to stump you with some questions. And the producers were very nice today, because the first question is actually multiple choice. Um, although you have to know about the economy. So maybe they balanced the topic <laughs> with, with um, you know, the methods of answering. But let's let's see how we do here. So, The gross domestic product was negative for the first two quarters of 2022. This was the first time it was negative for two quarters in a row since what year? 1933, 1982, 2009, or 2020? Any guesses? I'm going to go with 1982. All right. Adam? I was going to go with 2009. All right. This is why we have two people. So Adam was right. Obviously. It uh, was the most recent time was in 2009. So uh, the great, and then I have some information in case you cared. The great recession was the economic downturn from 2007 to 2009. And that was after the housing bubble and the global or the housing bubble burst and the global financial crisis. Can I change so, my answer? Yes, yes of course. <laughs> This is a team. So say, we need you only need one person to, to get it right. If so. you don't change your answer now, I'd worry about you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no, Thank I'm sticking by eighty two. I'm gonna do my own research. Um okay. So then on that note, um this one I think is a little tougher, but let's see how you guys do. Maybe you can just get ballpark. So how much did the gross domestic product decline in the second quarter of twenty twenty two? And I don't have any numbers for you here, but I, I can give some ranges if that would help. That would help. Okay. So <laughs> let's do under one percent, under five percent, and under ten percent. I'll go first this time, Matt. If, if you, yeah, I'm just going to agree with you. I so would say I don't think it was very much. I think below one percent decline. Love it. That's that's my guess too. All right, Matt. Smart thinking, and you are correct, Adam. It was 0.9 percent. So it dropped. Actually, I didn't realize this this much. Maybe 1.6 percent during the first quarter of 2022, but then in the second quarter, it was only another 0.9. So you know, kind of moving at least in the right direction. Um, all right. Well, that is all I have for you today. Good job on the trivia. I would say you're two for two. So a good record there. And a um, pleasure to have you both on. And thanks so much for joining thanks me. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Heather. 
That's our show for today. Tune in later this week for more ESG content, and we'll be back next Tuesday to continue our series on impairment, where we'll be diving into the impairment models for goodwill and intangible assets. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.